Hello, and welcome to the Inequality Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Durloff, the director of the Stone Center for Research on Wealth, Inequality, and Mobility. Thanks for joining us. Welcome, everyone, to the second Inequality Podcast, and this is a continuation of our conversation with Sam Bowles. If you haven't heard the first podcast, I urge you to do so because it covers important dimensions of Sam's intellectual development, as well as his essential contributions to the study of inequality. In this episode, we move towards Sam's more contemporary work, as well as his reflections on the history of the ideas that he's grappled with throughout his career. This podcast is going to be a bit different than the conventional one, in the sense that Sam is going to give very long answers to the questions that I pose him. And so it's going to have a more didactic and pedagogical, shall we say, uh, dimension than, than you might be used to. Actually, Sam took the role of a teacher and so gives uh, very detailed and insightful uh, explanations of both the evolution of his thinking as well as his contemporary work, in particular on the ancient uh, origins and the ancient nature of inequality. In addition to that, Sam talks about his efforts to improve the economics curriculum, to create a much closer relationship between what is taught in introductory courses and the state of economics as a social science, as well as the basic facts of the world, in particular as they relate to inequality. Sam, would you, might we talk a bit about your, your thinking with respect to Marxian ideas? Because, uh, you know, and, and again, this is a place where you, you know, your, your ideas evolved. And so I think it would be valuable to say something about what ideas have persisted in your mind over time and which ones have you, have you, uh, you, you rejected. Let me go back to when I was uh, a student. Um, I had learned the Russian language. And I was a performer of Russian vocal music along with a, a group of others. And we toured the Soviet Union uh, twice in 1958 and 59. That interaction, of course, gave me a front seat view of what communism in practice was about. Uh, and I don't think I really needed a lot of immunization against that. It didn't sound very attractive to me to start with. But I, um, when I became a, a young man and a polit politically active person, uh, communism and that form of uh, um, social organization just was of no interest to me at all. But interestingly, and unrelated to that, at the same time, I was curious about um, uh, the problem of economic development. Uh, I had lived in Africa for three years right after I left college. And it was there that I began to think that, you know, maybe there is something to what Marx was saying. Because what Marx had in mind was somehow that economics was important. And uh, I had thought I might be a lawyer um, and I was going to go back and go to law school. And um, living in Africa, in a remote part of Africa, I came to the conclusion that uh, legal devices and national boundaries and these legal things didn't really matter very much. What really mattered is how people made their living. So my interest in Marx really um, uh, stemmed from that. Just basically, 
looking at Marx's historical materialism as a way of studying how societies move and, and develop. And on that, I think Marx had a very good idea, and I still think it's a good idea, which is that if you look historically, it's very often the case that technologies are very dynamic and institutions are static. And there's a reason for that. If you come up with a better mousetrap, okay, go ahead and use it. But if you come up and you can do it by yourself, you don't need everybody else to go along with you with your idea, whatever it is. Um, so a technology can be adopted by an individual who can benefit from it. Um, a, uh, if you come up with the idea of a new institution, well, that's a different story. I mean, suppose you, you're all, everyone is driving on the right and you think, oh no, it would be much better if we all drove on the left. That's a hard one to sell. Uh, you have to sell it to everybody. So what Marx said, basic idea, technologies are dynamic, institutions are static. Institutions hang around for a long time after they actually aren't doing a very good job given the new technologies. So eventually, technology develops in such a way that institutions have to change so as to accommodate the new technologies. Well, that's a heroic view of world history. And I love its ambition. It says something real. Um, it's a hypothesis about how things change. I think it's sometimes right. And I, I think a view as, as as, I, as cosmic as that is bound to be wrong most of the time. Anyway, that's something which I really value. I learned two other things from Marx. The second one is institutions shape who we are. That is, we learn our preferences, our beliefs, that is what we believe in and the kind of things that we desire and value are to some extent shaped by the institutions that govern our lives. Now, that's in part because in order to be a success under a certain set of institutions, you have to be a certain kind of person. Uh, that is, to be a good hunter-gatherer, for example, you have to be uh, very creative about the, your use of knowledge. You have to be actually a very knowledgeable person about animals. And uh, you have to be able to cooperate maybe with a couple of people, but not with a very large number, and so on. To be a success in an American firm, unless you're very lucky to be in the management, you have to learn something very different. You have to learn to uh, take orders, to uh, basically do something boring all day uh, at someone else's direction. So essentially, the idea institutions are going to shape who we are. And the, the, the third thing that I picked up from Marx is that um, market relationships, buying and selling stuff, is a political relationship. And this is most obvious when it's buying and selling your time. If I rent myself to an employer, what I've done essentially is I've given my employer the jurisdiction over what I do. I essentially said, you can tell me what to do over this period of time in the day. That's essentially a political relationship. And by the way, that aspect of Marxism is no different from Ronald Coase's theory of the firm. It's exactly the same idea. So here you have a interesting convergence between the Marxian ideas about employment as a political relationship and the University of Chicago. So, okay, historical materialism as a way of understanding the broad sweep of history, endogenous preferences, institutions shape us, employment is political, those things I think are really valuable. What, what is of less value is what um, is Marx's labor theory of value. 
This is Marx's attempt at a general equilibrium theory of prices that is taking the whole economy um, and it's all of its interactions. Uh, it's not generally known, uh, but uh, his ideas here were based on um, David Ricardo, um, the classical economist. Um, it was kind of state of the art at the time. It didn't work very well. And um, I was going to say it's been superseded by modern economics, but that would seem to suggest that we really have a good general equilibrium theory of prices, which we don't yet. But I don't think that Karl Marx's labor theory of value is much of a contender. Uh, we're still trying to develop a theory of how the parts of a whole economy fit together uh, in a way that allows us to say something dynamic about how prices are formed and how prices changed. What we have so far is really uh, kind of shockingly primitive. We have a theory which we teach students to say, well, consider the firm in a competitive firm takes prices as given. Uh, a consumer in a competitive market takes prices as given. And then we go to the next chapter and we have a supply and demand graph and then we say, uh, well, if supply doesn't equal demand, uh, then prices change. And students will ask you, oh, how do prices change? Uh, I, thought, I thought you said that prices are taken as given. And of course, uh, there is an answer to that. And Kenneth Arrow, a long time ago, wrote a nice little paper saying, well, I guess when the market, when, when supply doesn't equal demand, somebody in the market realizes that they can actually make more money by not acting as a price taker, but acting as a price maker. But it turned out to be um, extraordinarily difficult to work that into a formal mathematical model. The closest that we have to that is actually a bunch of models based on Hayek, uh, in which we we see the people engaging in, in, in price, price making, uh, essentially bargaining. Uh, and when all the bargains that have been uh, the, the, when all the bargains that could be mutually beneficial to the parties have been um, consummated, well, then there's no more bargaining to do, and that's a Hayekian equilibrium. And, and that seems to me to be the way we should be going in general equilibrium theory, formalizing that insight. I wanted to give, uh, ask that you could tell, talk a bit about the core curriculum. You know, part of what you've you've expressed great optimism about is the the ways in which economics has expanded its its domains of explanations, its domains of inquiry, uh, and with particular focus in inequality. Uh, but it's not just a passive matter; it's an active matter for you because of the work you've done in trying to create a a a, a, a modern curriculum. So, could you tell the audience about core? Yeah. My concern with um, economics education, of course, goes back to my own experience in education and the fact that I didn't learn what I think an economist ought to know. If you ask students around the world, suppose you did this, the first day of class before anybody's heard anything about economics, ask them, what do you think economics ought to be dealing with? Just write down a word or two, and then you collect them and you make a word cloud. The word cloud has inequality in giant fonts. Uh, climate change will be there too. It'll have poverty and so on. Now, the traditional topics of economics, they'll be in the word cloud, prices, unemployment, and so on, but really pretty small. That what, what people want to know about, what the students want to know about is uh, the planet, the future of the planet, and economic injustice. Now, 
I don't think we're serving them. The discrepancy between what we teach our grad students, which is actually in many fields pretty good. It may be it's some of our graduate training has turned into training in applied math, and it isn't really about uh, society at all. There's a lot wrong with what we do in grad schools. But a lot of what we teach our graduate students is modern economics. And that's, uh, I think, for the most part, uh, made great strides in recent decades. The tragedy is that undergraduates don't get any of that. What undergraduates get uh, in the first year course and very often in the second year intermediate micro and macro is basically some combination of Marshall and Keynes. And that's it. Now, I'm a great admirer of Marshall and Keynes, but a great deal has happened since them. Uh, interestingly, seeing you mentioned Hayek, they don't get Hayek. They don't get the problem of information. They don't even get the idea of, for example, principal agent models and the problems of employers and bankers not knowing whether the person's gonna repay the nature of the project and so on. All the things that grad students get really good at doing are not there. Now, what that means is that uh, the undergrads are getting some, I think, very out of date view of economics. We still teach undergraduates that it's a good assumption to say that people are selfish, entirely selfish, amoral. Students find that odd. They don't think that's true. Um, uh, or uh, we have models in which uh, markets clear in equilibrium. And students must wonder about that when they notice that they have a hard time getting a job. Well, that means that supply doesn't equal demand in the labor market. Or perhaps their parents are having a hard time getting a loan. Well, that means that the, the, the credit market uh, isn't clearing. So students are not getting something which they would help them understand the world. So what we decided to do is uh, something which people told us wouldn't work. Let's start with a textbook which says, it's gonna be about stuff we care about. We started with, well, let's understand why some countries of the world are rich and some are not rich, the question I asked my mom. Let's ask about planetary boundaries and so on, and then say, what would you have to understand? What analytical tools would you need in order to answer these questions? So uh, instead of using uh, like toy examples like shopping and so on to illustrate our models, we start out with really big societal problems and then we build up models uh, to try to figure out um, what we can say about that. For example, when we talk about how did, the, how did Europe get rich? Well, we study technical change. We introduce Schumpeter. And the very first model our students get is a, a firm choosing a technology so as to minimize cost and what happens and what happens to the, uh, if there, if the factor prices change. That's the first model they get. And why do they get it? Because they see, oh, if we understand that, then we may understand how Europe got rich and so on. Now, there's many other things we've done in this textbook. I think the thing that students will say, they'll, they'll say two things about our textbook. The first is, it's not a book. Uh, it's online, it's on your phone, it's free, the price is right. Um, everybody uh, gets what, uh, more than what they paid for because the price is zero. Um, and, the, and the second thing is, because we were digital first, we, we went straight to digital, um, we have the opportunity for doing a lot of very uh, exciting pedagogical things, uh, like a lot of interactive things that um, you can't do, obviously, in a textbook. So 
uh, our teaching is much more student-centered. Um, and uh, it's, I think, popular with students because it does the things I said. It addresses real problems. Uh, and um, it does so in a student-centered way. And as I say, the price is right. Sam, might you uh, uh, discuss your your recent your both recent and longer going research on the ancient origins of inequality? Well, let me start, Stephen. Thank you with, for that question because it is it is my passion. Yeah. Um, uh, you may ask, uh, well, why should we be interested in inequality ten thousand years ago or five thousand years ago? I think the answer is pretty simple. Uh, we have wonderful studies of inequality over the last 200 years, 100 years, most of our studies of inequality necessarily are based on tax data. And taxes, uh, which extended to most of the population, simply didn't exist in most places uh, until uh, 100 years ago or a few hundred years ago. What this means is that the empirical basis for our understanding of inequality are restricted to societies very, very similar to each other and very similar to today. So. My interest in ancient inequality uh, is primarily because I want to have a subject matter in which we have really major institutional differences and technological differences. Um, now, how do you study inequality 5,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago? Well, um, uh, the archaeological data is based primarily on the typical archaeological remains, such as um, uh, houses and palaces and storerooms and uh, graves. That's about it. Uh, what we do is we look at the size of houses, the size of them, the differing size of houses. Sometimes we have enough data on storage areas so we can see this this particular place had a lot of stores, and this place didn't, and so on. And in many societies where people bury goods with their dead, uh, we can look at inequality in the amount of grave goods that people have. Um, now, um, we can get some inferences about what the past was probably like by studying societies today that are probably similar to the economies that existed five or 10,000 years ago. That is, hunter-gatherers um, living in remote areas, not under state rule. Uh, there are very few of them left, but they've been studied uh, you know, starting in the 1930s and 40s. We have some evidence uh, from there. Uh, or small-scale farmers operating with hand tools, operating, for example, without plows or without steel, uh, without iron, and so on. Uh, now, I've done both of the kind of research um, with a big team of anthropologists and economists. Uh, we collected data from uh, recent hunter-gatherer populations and small-scale farmers. We measured just about everything. We measured how strong their arms were. Were among the hunters, we measured how many calories of stuff did they catch, or did they catch, or did they dig up? In the case of women, um, in the in the farmers, we measured their crop yields and so on. And so we were able to get quite detailed measures of the extent to which these things are held unequally. And then the critical thing is we're able to study the relationship between the father or mother's wealth and their offspring's wealth, their, their daughters and sons. And that's a key link, of course, looking at the intergenerational transmission of wealth, which is a key to sustaining wealth inequalities. Now, what have we found out? Well, first thing to know is that our distant ancestors, hunter-gatherers, were not all egalitarian. 
there are, there are some hunter-gatherers who are strikingly egalitarian, as we know from the modern data and also looking at the past. We have every reason to think that they are quite egalitarian on, on material things. Uh, but we also have hunter-gatherer societies which had slaves. There's even one hunter-gatherer society that had a standing army. Uh, so the idea somehow that hunter-gatherers were kind of a natural state of inequality in the distant past doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, there are cases of highly unequal hunter-gatherer societies. But the striking thing about the data is how rare the evidence is. You find some burials 25,000 years ago of, uh, with um, jewelry and so on among uh, mammoth hunters. And you say, oh, that's an inegalitarian hunter-gatherer. And even the sons or daughters of the rich person are there also decorated in the grave. And you think, well, that's evidence that they had um, a lot of inequality. And then the first question you ask is, well, uh, what about the next generation? Why are we not seeing more of these? Was there just one generation? Did they get away with murder for a while and then they got um, kicked out or maybe they didn't survive? We don't know why, but the big, the big news to me is that prior to 5,000 years ago, inequality was extraordinarily fragile. There are some examples of high levels of inequality, but very few examples of it lasting more than a couple of generations. Um, farming began about 11,000 years ago. We don't have high levels of inequality in wealth by our measures until maybe 5,000 years ago. What does that mean? It means that for 6,000 years, we had farming societies which were fairly egalitarian. That's news. Because uh, people thought that inequality came with farming. It didn't. Something else happened. Uh, something changed. Now, if you think about, well, how did they sustain their equal societies? Um, again, people think, well, they hadn't invented inequality yet, or they didn't, hadn't happened. No, that's not it. Of course, there are always people who are aggrandizers who are trying to get advantages over other people. Um, I think there's all that's always likely to happen, and occasionally they get away with it, and we have an unequal <laughs> society. But the, what explains these long runs of fairly equal farming societies is what I would call aggressive egalitarianism. That is, people fought to maintain equality in their society, and. Uh, you know, you don't have to make this up. You can see in some places where the wealth of the wealthy in an, in an early farming society was simply destroyed. Houses burned down. Uh, the things which they used for grinding uh, grain and so on destroyed. Um, and so it does look like people were aggressively egalitarian. A um, couple of puzzles that I think are really um, uh, important. With this aggressive egalitarianism, how did it finally happen that inequality came about? Well, we don't know for most parts of the world, but in the Middle East, uh, we have pretty good evidence that it was not an institutional change initially that introduced uh, uh, high levels of inequality. It was a change in technology. That is the shift to growing crops using ox-brawn plows. Up until that point, among the hunter-gatherers and among the farmers, the scarce resource in a society was labor, your own labor. As long as you're in a society which is based on primarily on labor, you're basically, it's gonna be hard to generate a lot of inequality unless some of those laborers become slaves. But setting aside slavery, 
if it's a labor-based society, inequality seems to be pretty easy uh, to defeat. The ox brawn plow in the Middle East changed that. I mean, you can think about that. If you want to think the ox brawn plow, that's the robot of the Neolithic. Uh, they're, they're eliminating the demand for labor. Um, uh, I think the answer to the story is basically uh, when inequalities became really significant, for example, Gini coefficients rising from like 0.25 to 0.35 in that range up to 0.5565, you know, getting to have modern levels of inequality, um, a lot of those societies didn't survive. They began, inequality began to survive when we began to see the creation of things like states, that is a concentration of political power. And fairly shortly after that, labor itself became a commodity, that is through slavery. And so I think the take home is that wealth inequality is a political phenomenon. Uh, its origins in the Bronze Age had to do with uh, scarcity and abundance of labor and land. And I still think that's an important part of the story. But in order to sustain the high levels of inequality, which we saw beginning in the Bronze Age and the Iron Age and the Roman Empire and so on, up to today, uh, that, that's a political challenge. Uh, and it's, a, it's, a, um, it's sustained politically. I did have one final thing I wanted to ask you to, sure. to talk about, which is your book, The Moral Economy. A theme uh, that I perceive throughout your writings uh, has always been this the emphasis on the idea that we're, you know, we're not just homo economicus, we're homo ethicus. In other mm -hmm. words, that our behaviors reflect uh, ethical commitments. And so mm -hmm. to my eyes, that's an area where economics has, you know, is still pretty much in its infancy in terms of modeling and thinking about the empirical implications. And so I wonder if you could say a bit about the book and your thinking there. Yes, I, uh, let me see how to start. Um, when my kids were teenagers, they helped out a lot. I was a single dad and they helped out a lot around the house. Uh, and um, uh, when they got to be like adolescents and wanted more money for buying clothes and so on, I had this ingenious idea. Being an economist, I said, okay, look, I'm gonna make a price list for all the stuff that you guys are doing and that way you can like make money and so you can buy the clothes you want and we'll have to argue about the clothes and um it sounds like the labor theory of value but you should go ahead <laughs> <laughs> well uh, uh my kids thought it was a pretty good idea and we agreed about the, the price list and so on because and they, they were they were great they're so helpful around the house and um after the price list got posted on the fridge they stopped doing anything and <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Uh, they had been perfectly willing to help out their poor dad uh, in doing this housework stuff. But once it had a price on it, they said, forget it. Now, of course, probably the prices were too low or something. Uh, but uh, thinking back on that, I think economists often make the same mistake. Um, that is, uh, it's said to be um, a prudent way to design public policy, to assume that everybody's selfish and therefore design policies which will appeal to a selfish person to do the right thing. That's the idea. Now, that's not prudent uh, for two reasons. Um, one is uh, the incentives and the constraints that you can define and design as a mechanism designer, an institution designer, are never gonna be good enough to solve the problems that we face today. That is, 
uh, we're never going to have a bunch of incentives and constraints that's going to allow us to address fully the problem of, say, climate change or economic justice, or for that matter, personal security or living in a decent society. The things we care about, we cannot sufficiently incentivize them to make them happen. And by the way, none of the classical economists ever thought, not Adam Smith and none of the others ever thought that you could organize society based on incentives and constraints alone. Economists have taken that over as a view of public policy and it's, it's mistaken. Um, but the second reason why it's mistaken is not only will that approach be insufficient, uh, it's that it sometimes backfires. Uh, that is sometimes putting a price on something like I did with my kids, putting a price on something actually means the job doesn't get done at all. Now, when I think about the world into which we're entering as a modern economy, getting the job done well in a modern economy, what does it take? It means, for example, the person who's waiting on a table in a restaurant has to somehow want to do a good job. The person who's doing some medical research has to somehow be committed intrinsically to that job. Uh, uh, or the person who, say, a private security person uh, um, uh, giving protection to, a, say, a building or something. None of these jobs can be adequately monitored so that you can actually pay people by their doing the job. Um, now, probably 100 years ago, the economy was made up much more of producing things, wheat and, 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 uh, and steel and things you could measure. But as we move into what is sometimes called the weightless economy, weightless because you can't measure it and weigh it and so on, as we move into this economy in which so much of what we depend on cannot be measured, what it means is we depend more and more on intrinsic motivation, uh, some kind of positive value, either that we're committed to doing this because we promised somebody or because we reciprocate a favor that our employers did to us or or some reason other than self-interest. So I see that as something which we, we have to uh, take on board the fact that people's other regarding preferences, their regard for other people and their ethical reasoning and their ethical preferences, is an important part of how a modern economy works. Now, remember, if you go back to say the, the 16th century, uh, Avarice was one of the deadly sins. It's called avarice. Uh, then go fast forward uh, two and a half generations, it becomes called self-interest, and it's kind of been domesticated, and it's a good idea. How did that happen? Well, it wasn't the idea of the invisible hand that made self-interest acceptable. It was the fear that religious intolerance, zealotry, and so on, we're tearing society apart. Uh, the most lethal century in Europe for warfare was not the 20th century with the two world wars. It was the 17th century. More people died as a fraction of the population in warfare then. And that was a century then in which we began to see people saying, oh, actually trying to succeed economically is kind of benign compared to the other ways in which people try to get ahead and try to advance their cause. Now, this is not a reason for going back to self-interest as the motive which we will try to base our economy on. It's impossible. But what it means is this. 
If you take on board the idea that society is based on people's ethical and other regarding preferences, also take on board the fact that those among those things, the caring about other people and so on, are repugnant values such as racism, homophobia, hatred of others, and so on. That is, that's part and parcel of the taking account of what we think about other people. So uh, I think economics has developed a pretty good understanding of how a society based on self-interest might work. Uh, of course, I'm critical of a lot of the economic theory and so on, but that's basically what we've done. What we have not yet done is we haven't figured out how a society would work based on people's ethical reasoning and other regarding preferences once we include that not all of those are things which we find acceptable. The Inequality Podcast is a production of the Stone Center for Research on Wealth Inequality and Mobility at the University of Chicago. It is hosted by myself, Stephen Durloff, along with Damon Jones, Jeffrey Wadka, and Ariel Khalil. This episode was recorded, sound engineered, and produced by Eric Gepper with support from Gerardo Espinal Franco. Thanks as well to the Center's Executive Director, Grace Hammond, for all her support. Please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast among your friends and send any questions or feedback to ucstonecenter at gmail.com. That's all for now. Thanks for joining us.